0: The second Bible reading is taken from Daniel chapter seven. The whole chapter. Daniel chapter seven, verse one. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions passed through his mind as he was lying on his bed. He wrote down the substance of his dream. Daniel said, in my vision at night I looked, and there before me were the four winds of, of heaven churning up the great sea. Four great, great beasts, <clears throat> each different from the other, came up out of the sea. The first was like a lion, and it had the wings of an eagle. I watched until its wings were torn off and it was lifted from the ground so that it stood on two feet like a man, and the heart of a man was given to it. And therefore before me was second beast which looked like a bear. It was raised up on, it, on one of its sides and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. It was told, get up, and eat your fill of flesh. After that I looked and there before me was another beast, one that looked like a, a leopard. And on its back it had four wings like those of a bird. This beast had four heads and it was giving authority to rule. After that in my vision at night I looked and there before me was a fourth beast, terrifying and frightening and very powerful. It had a large iron teeth. It crushed and devoured its victims and trembled underfoot whatever was left. It was different from all the former beasts and it had 10 horns. While I was thinking about the horns, there before me was another horn, a little one, which came up among them, and three of the fairest horns were uprooted before it. This horn had eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth that spoke boastfully. As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow, The hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court was seated, and the books were opened. Then I continued to watch because of the boastful words the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. The other beasts had been stripped of their authority but were allowed to live for a period of time. In my vision at night, I looked. And there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was giving authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshiped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. I, Daniel, was troubled in spirit, and the vision that passed through my mind disturbed me. I I approached one of those standing there and asked him the true meaning of all this. So he told me and gave me the interpretation of these things, the four great beasts are four kingdoms that will rise from the earth. But the saints of the most high will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever, yes, forever and ever. Then I wanted to know the true meaning of the fourth beast, which was different from all the others and most terrifying. With its iron teeth and bronze clothes, the beast that crushed and devoured its victims and, troubled and trembled underfoot whatever was left. I also wanted to know about the ten horns on its head and about the other horn that came up, therefore, before which three of them fell, the horn that looked more imposing than the others, and that hid that had eyes and mouths that spoke boastfully. As I watched, this horn was waging war against the saints and defeating them, until the Ancient of Days came and pronounced judgment in favor of the saints of the Most High, and the time came when they possessed the kingdom. He gave me this explanation. The fourth beast is the fourth kingdom that will appear on earth. It will be different from all the other kingdoms and will devour the whole earth, trembling it down and crushing it. The ten horns are ten kings who will come from, the king, from this kingdom. After them, another king will arise, different from the earlier ones. He will subdue three kings. He will speak against the Most High and oppress the, his saints and try to change the set times and the laws. The, say, the saints will be handed over to him for time, times, and half a time. But the court will sit and his power will be taken away and completely destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty, power, and greatness of these kingdoms. Under the whole heaven will be handed over to the saints, the people of the Most High. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all rulers will worship and obey him. This is the end of the matter. I, Daniel, was deeply troubled by my thoughts, and my face turned pale, but I kept the matter to myself. This is God's word.
1: Thank you, Ahmed. It is uh, a long reading, but uh, what a wonderful vision we're allowed to see and the explanation of it. But we do need God's help, uh, so let's pray once again. Heavenly Father, as we consider this part of Scripture, it may sound very different and foreign and difficult, but we know that you've given us your Spirit, that we might understand your ways and your Word and what it means for us. So we pray, Lord, that you might help us in that way now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, there are many movies that are worth watching again, and I wonder what that might be for you. Movies that not only capture our imaginations, but also captures our hopes. I wonder what movie that might be for you. Uh, for me, it will never be a romantic movie, never worth watching. I mean, Titanic, it's the same ending each time. It doesn't go well for Titanic. For me... Type of movie that captures my imagination, and if you've got good taste, I think you'll agree with me. Movies like The Lord of the Rings, the trilogy, it's the best. I mean, it's a story of the ultimate story of good versus evil. And you see evil finally defeated the orcs, the monsters, the dragons finally defeated. That the evil of mortal, the dark lord, devastated and gone. And good wins. Good comes out the victor. And in the last scene, one of the last scene, I watched it again last night, in fact, just, just to paint that picture for you, the camera is panning up high, and you see this massive castle. And there are thousands upon thousands of people, of elves, of the good ones, focus upon what was happening at the, at the front. And what were they focusing on? The coronation of... Of the true king beautiful scene the music's playing the symphony is celtic and it's very moving and uplifting i mean it it brings a tear to some of us such a beautiful scene and i want you to just keep that in mind that type of scene thousands upon thousands seas of people focus on what was happening the coronation of the king of kings and in a sense that's what we're seeing in this passage that grand picture, in fact, it's far more glorious and far more grand here. Because this is true. And it's, in this story, it's about the God of the universe, not just in a story. The God of the universe who coronates the true king of all and defeats all the enemies. And so that's the picture I want you to see as we approach this passage. And so here, Daniel, he gets a vision. It's the first year of Belshazzar's reign. And so the way we're meant to understand these visions from chapters 7 to 12 is that they are embedded within chapters 1 to 6, during the narrative, during the story. And so this one happens between chapters five, 4 and 5. And what's the vision about? Well, it's a vision about a fallen world. A fallen world with kingdoms that are evil, wicked, ruthless, beastly that is what is described it's the nightmare of nightmares so terrifying we're told daniel he was so frightened by it his face turned pale white and you can just imagine thinking imagining those pictures of the beasts in your mind they're terrifying because they are so unnatural so distorted i mean this past week i know many of the growth groups in our church you attempted to draw some of these beasts in our youth group as well. And if you haven't, it might be a helpful exercise just to, you know, work your imaginations. But I've got some examples for you. In my growth group this past week, the first beast, what was that about? Half lion, half eagle. This was what one came up with. It's meant to be frightening. This one's a lot better. From someone in you know. The second beast, what's that about? Well, that's, that's a bear. Looks like a teddy bear with whiskers. It's meant to be ribs, meant to be, you know, devouring something. And here's another, it's a teddy bear. Uh, good effort. The third one, the, the leopard with four heads and four wings, looks like some insect to me. This one's a little bit better by someone else in my growth group. And the final one, the most fierce. And fearsome of all, ruthless, devouring, defeating everything in its path. Looks like a guy with a bad haircut and bad teeth. And this is another one. But anyway, you can see how difficult it's just trying to picture these beasts in your mind. But they're not meant to be like that, which some of them were quite cute, in fact. They're meant to be terrifying. Now, what do we know about them? Well, firstly, we know they came from the sea. Have a look. If you have your Bibles, we'll work our way through parts of this chapter. Verse 3. Four huge beasts came up from the sea, each different from each other. Now, what's that meant to tell us, these beasts coming from the sea? Well, in the, book of the, in the Old Testament, in fact, the sea represents chaos and disorder, danger, all that was mysterious, you know, you stay away from the sea. And so the story of Jonah, where frightened the people to be thrown into the sea, that is dying. You don't want to do that. And that's why when we get to the New Testament, when Jesus, in the storm, he was able to calm the wind and the waves, what was the response of the disciples? Because who can deal with the chaotic sea? And so their response was, who is this man? Who could bring order? where there is chaos. And so what we learn already is that these beasts, these worldly kingdoms arise from a fallen chaotic world. Now what, what are we told about them? Well we're told they're terrifying, fearsome, beastly mutants. It's meant to conjure up images that are so unnatural. You don't see these type of creatures in our world. It's meant to bring to mind how How fallen this created order has become. Because if we think back to the creation itself in Genesis chapter 1, what happened there? How did God create the world? How did God create the animal kingdom? Well, he created each animal according to its kind. Do you remember that phrase? Each animal according to its kind, and that was good. A lion was a lion. An eagle was an eagle, and that was good. But here we see these mutants where you've got a blend of a lion and an eagle. And so what that's meant to tell us is that this fallen world is corrupted. It has perverted God's creation order. And so when humanity humanity, abandons the rule of God, turns its back to God, and turns away from God, The rule of humanity and the rule of the kingdoms of this world becomes beastly. And we saw that example with Nebuchadnezzar himself. Remember that earlier, a few chapters earlier? What happened to him when he was so proud? Look at what I've achieved. He's putting himself up against God. He fails to recognize that there is a God above him. He becomes like a beast, remember that? Eating grass with fingers and nails like claws. And so these beasts, they're terrifying, but they're showing how they have perverted God's creation order. No longer a human being. No longer humanity ruling this world, but mutant beast. And of course, they're not just beasts in the sense that they're frightening, but they're meant to represent all that is wrong and evil. This is the battle between good and evil on the cosmic scale. And so... I guess then the next question is, what kingdoms do they represent? We know that these four beasts are four kingdoms, so what kingdoms are they? Well, what we see here in chapter 7 is a parallel of chapter 2 with Nebuchadnezzar's vision. Remember what he saw? He saw the statue with the four different parts, gold, silver, bronze, iron, clay, the four different parts. Well, it's in a sense a parallel of that. And so the first kingdom, you can say it's perhaps the kingdom of Babylon, the head of gold, that was Nebuchadnezzar. And after that, it could be the subsequent kingdoms that arose, the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans. But this is again the point at which it is important to remember how apocalyptic literature works, just like what Michelle has shared. You know, many PhDs and ink used up trying to identify one-to-one what these beasts are, where they were in human history, and which kingdom they were. What is the ten horns? Which is the one horn? And trying to harmonise it all with human history, and perhaps to even use it to predict the future. However, if we are to understand apocalyptic literature rightly, then it is to understand that the pictures painted in this vision may though refer to actual kingdoms in human history, they are in a sense set up to encompass all the kingdoms of human history. They are set up as patterns of this world in rebellion against God. And so what we see here are visions making a theological statement, theological pictures of the conflict between the world and God. And when you try to align them, one for one, because you, you always run into trouble when you do that. But when you align it one-to-one with history, you go into all sorts of rabbit holes and find yourself into tro- in trouble. But that's not how apocalyptic literature works. And that is why it is intentionally ambiguous. It is ambiguous. Now, I remember when I was a, a younger Christian man, I remember going to listen to a lecture about, you know, the end of the world. I was so fascinated with all these dreams, visions, signs, what do they mean? And I remember being told by this lecturer, he said, the ten horns, they represent the countries of the European Union. That worked back then because there were only ten, but it doesn't work anymore, does it? I mean, I think there are about twenty seven countries now. And then you have to ask, well, what's the little horn then? Well, perhaps it's Brexit, I don't know. But you see how it just doesn't work when you try to align it with history one for one. It's painting a picture of a world in rebellion against God. And so the point again, like what we've made earlier, you do not want to miss the forest for the trees. You see the forest. Don't get tied down with the little details and try to align it One for one in human history. Because what we see here is a picture of a fallen world. And what we see is what continues to be seen in the world today. During the time of Daniel and today as well. Because if you think about where do we see kingdoms like this? Like these beasts. Ruthless, violent, destroying everything in its path. Beastly, mutant-like. Where have you seen that? I mean, just consider the last century. The many kingdoms that have arose and destroyed so much. I mean, just consider Nazi Germany. Nazi Germany, what happened? The horrors of the Auschwitz concentration camps. The atrocities of the gas chambers. The the medical experiments they performed on men, women, and children. It's horrific. I remember in high school being taught about about what happened during World War II. And the teacher describing all the horrors of what they did. What do you describe that as? It's just like this. It was beastly. You see, the patterns we see in Daniel is what we continue to see in the world. And so if you were Daniel at this point, that's what you've seen in your vision. How would you be feeling at this point? You see these pictures of these terrifying beasts. Well, you'd be thinking, well, what hope is there for me? Well, what hope is there for the people of God if this is what we're up against? If this is the people we're up against, if this is the powers we're up against, what hope is there for me? And that's why the vision doesn't stop there. Because next, Daniel now gets to get a vision of heaven itself and of the reign of God. You see, we get to now look into the throne room of heaven. And what we're meant to see here is not to be taken chronologically as though you know we're, we're to see the beast arise out of the earth and then after that we go into heaven. It's in fact happening at the very same time. It's in parallel. So you see what's happening on the earth. At the same time you look into heaven and this is what you see. And so what do we see? Well, when you consider the description here, it's meant to not only grip our imagination, it's meant to give us that sense of awe and majesty and glory. It's meant to blow our minds. You see what we're meant to see here is a vision that is beyond words can even describe. because how do you describe the indescribable? How do you Describe the indescribable God. How do you confine the glories and majesty of God in heaven? To finite human words. I mean, hymn writers have attempted that, haven't they? Immortal, invisible, God only wise. In light inaccessible, hid from our eyes. Most blessed, most glorious, the ancient of days. Almighty, victorious thy great name we praise i mean the hymn writers they have attempted to describe the indescribable and this was daniel's attempt verse 9 have a look as i kept watching thrones plural were set in place and the ancient of days took his seat now why is god described as the ancient of days this is where we find it we sing about it this is where it comes from it's because unlike the beast who all had a beginning. God is from all eternity. And then we read on. The picture is filling up. His clothing was white like snow and the hair of his head like white as wool. It's meant to describe the wisdom of God. His purity, his holiness, you, you can't get to him, he's so bright, stands in stark contrast to the beast. And then we read on. His throne was flaming fire, its wheels were blazing fire. Someone in my growth group said, Is that a wheelchair? No, it's not a wheelchair. It's a chariot throne. It's to represent power and glory of the king who reigns. And of course, fire speaks of his presence. But then fire also speaks of judgment. Verse 10 now. A river of fire was flowing, coming out of his presence. And now the climax is building up. You know, the symphony, the music is, what is a crescendo? That's when it's going up. And then we read, thousands upon thousands served him. 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court was convened and the books were opened. It is judgment. And so what happens? While this was happening on earth, the beasts were coming out of the sea. In heaven, this was happening. They are being destroyed, their dominion removed, though some were allowed to go on for a little longer. Now what this should highlight to us as we see, in a sense, two realms. We look at the earth and we see the beast. You look into heaven and you see the Ancient of Days. What it's meant to bring to mind is that the forces of evil and the forces of good, it's not a 50-50 and we don't know who's going to win. You see, it's wrong when we think about God and evil as though it is a dualism. It's not a dualism at all. It's not 50-50 and we just don't know who's going to come out on top. God is sovereign overall. Even though on earth these bees were raging, in heaven God still reigns. God gives dominion and God can take it away. And that's what happens in this heavenly throne room. Verse 13, now have a look. And suddenly, one like a son of man was coming with the clouds of heaven. Who is coming? Not a beast. Remember the pictures in our minds so far? Not a half human. Not a mutant. But one who is fully man. A son of man. Now why is that important to remember? You see, right at the very beginning in God's creation, who did God intend to rule the world? He did not give the rule of the world to the animal kingdom. He did not give it to the monkeys or the donkeys or the koalas. He gave it to humanity. That's the picture of Genesis 1. But that was distorted because now you've got these beasts ruling the world. But you see, the one made in the image of God are the ones who are meant to rule. And so when humanity failed, and now the rules of the world are beastly, God has not failed. Because in the end, God will still install a human as ruler over all. A human who will restore humanity's lost dominion over creation. Do you see the point there? The world's destroyed. God intended a human being, and it will be a human being who will rule. And then we read on, where is he coming from? Well, we see now he comes with the clouds, which is meant to remind us, well, he's very different to those beasts who came from the sea. He comes with the clouds. Now, what do you think that suggests? If this one, like a son of man, comes with the clouds? Well, what it at least suggests is that he's not, creaturely but divine and already the picture is getting a bit messed up in our heads i suspect it's sending mixed messages he, he's he's a human being he's one like a son of man but yet he's coming in a cloud so perhaps he's also divine how can someone be both human and divine now we're still in daniel so don't don't jump to the new testament just yet If you're Daniel listening to this and seeing this, your mind will be so confused. How is this at all possible? And then we read on what happens next. Verse 13. He approached the Ancient of Days and was escorted before him. He was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, so that those of every people, nation and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. Now, if you're Daniel listening to this and seeing this, you'll be going mad. Because you're trying to match up so many pictures into the, into the one event. A, a, a human being given the rule of God. God will not share his glory with another. But yet God gives his rule to a human being. How is that at all possible? This human being receives worship from the tribes and the peoples and the nations. Only God is to be worshipped. How is a human being meant to be worshipped? And he receives a kingdom that belongs to God, an everlasting kingdom. I mean, isn't that all too much to give to one man? Now, of course, you may have noticed, I haven't yet told you who this Son of Man is. And I suspect you know the answer already. Because if you go to the New Testament, that is exactly what we see. Now, Daniel, at this point, he wouldn't have been able to make any sense of it at all. But who will approach the Ancient of Days to receive all power and glory and dominion? Well, it's the one who came from heaven and he said, The Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom to many. It is, of course, Jesus Christ. And if you consider the story of the Gospels, it was Jesus' favorite self-designation. And so when Jesus said, I am the Son of Man, he's not merely talking about his humanity. We have to remember that. We see it so often in the Gospels. When Jesus says, I'm the Son of Man, he's not talking merely about his humanity, but he's talking about Daniel 7, I am the divine ruler, entrusted by God with his kingdom. And that's why when the chief priest heard Jesus say, I'm the son of man, he said, that's blasphemy. How can you claim to be divine? And so the next question then becomes, when will the son of man be given power and dominion? When do you think this vision that Daniel was seeing, when was that going to happen? Well, the Son of Man, do you notice in this passage, came with the clouds and he approached the Ancient of Days. Where's the Ancient of Days? The Ancient of Days is in heaven, which means he's coming to heaven, to God. Now, often when we hear about Jesus coming in the clouds, the coming of Jesus, we immediately think the second coming. I suspect many people think that way. But I don't think that's what he said here. He's coming to the Ancient of Days, which means he's coming to God. It is really the coronation of Jesus Christ. And when did that happen? When was or is Jesus yet to be coronated? Well, it has happened already. After his death, resurrection and ascension back to God in heaven, that was his coronation. It is why Jesus was able to say after his resurrection, what did he say to his disciples at the end of Matthew? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He is saying, That is me. I am Daniel 7, the Son of Man in Daniel 7. But there's another layer to what we're seeing here in Daniel 7. Because at the same time, though it speaks of him going to the Ancient of Days, there's a lot of language here that sounds a lot like the Second Coming. Judgment Day, when all evil will be destroyed and every tongue and nation worship him. Is it the Second Coming? Is it the First? What do you think? Well, this is what I think is happening here. From the vantage point of Daniel, the coming of Jesus looked like just the one event. From Daniel's perspective, it was only the one event from his vantage point. However, from our vantage point, we can see that this one event was separated by distance, by time, the first and the second coming. The first in his death, resurrection, and ascension, coronated as king, and the second in his glorious return in judgment. And so from Daniel's perspective, it's like looking through a telescope. So if you look through a telescope and you see a star, It might just look like one big star, but there's perhaps another star behind it you just can't see. You only see the one. But from our vantage point, we can see it's actually the two events. But then, again, it might sound a little bit confusing, but not missing the forest for the trees, the point remains the same. On earth, it is chaotic disorder, but God still reigns, and he'll give his rule to one like a son of man, not the beast. And that is what is finally interpreted in the rest of this passage. Whatever's been played out in human history, in heaven it is a different story. But on earth, we are told here it will not be easy for the people of God, not for Daniel, not for any believer after him. Why? Because we're told it will be characterized by persecution. Look at verse 21. This horn waged war against the holy ones and was prevailing over them. That will always remain the case until Jesus returns. These times will be characterized by persecution. If it were not so, we would would not need Barnabas fund or open doors. And it is also characterized by blasphemy. Look at verse 25 now. He will speak words against the Most High and oppress the holy ones of the Most High. And isn't that what we still see today? Blasphemy against God. So flippant with words, speaking out against the Most High. I mean, God, have mercy and it will extend longer than we want, but not forever, verse 25 again. The holy ones will be handed over to him for a time, times and half a time, which means it's going to be longer than we want, a little bit more, but it will not be forever. There will be a finite end because what will happen in the end, verse 26, but the court will convene and his dominion will be taken away to be completely destroyed forever. The kingdom, dominion, and the greatness of the kingdoms under all of heaven will be given to the people, the holy ones of the Most High. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all rulers will serve and obey him. And that's like you know the final scene of the Lord of the Rings. Only this is true. The kingdom of God established forever. The true king worshipped by all. And that's what we see. And so it is a chapter filled with images and stories. It might be hard to understand, but it does mean something even for us today. It speaks to us just like it did for, the, for Daniel and those during his time. It helps us make sense of life now, and it helps us see what we are to expect. You see, we now live in what is called the overlap of the ages. We now live in what Daniel saw, as the one event in between the two events, the last days between the two comings of Jesus. What does that mean for us now, living as Christians today? Well, firstly, what it means is that we should not be surprised when we look around this world and we see mess and violence and brutality and beastliness. And when we see Christians targeted and persecuted, when we see pastors imprisoned in China, when we see ministers assassinated in North Korea, when we see churches set on fire in Pakistan, when we see Christians beheaded in Libya, when we see whole Christian families killed in Iraq, we should not be surprised because that is the age in which we live, ruled by beastly kingdoms. But even though we should not be surprised, and we'll see it increasingly even in in our land, we should not be disheartened or discouraged. Never discouraged. Now, I don't know about you, but I suspect some of us might feel a bit discouraged when we consider the Australia now in which we live compared to the one we grew up in. I've had a chat with some of you more senior uh, members of our church. It is such a different world. Only 30, 40 years ago, since I've been in Australia, such a different world to what it is now. And that might sound disheartening, what we've done to Christmas, what we've done to Easter. But we need not be disheartened. Because though on earth, remember, it looks this way. In heaven, it is a different story. God still reigns. In fact, we are not only to be not disheartened and discouraged, We are to have hope. We are to have hope, if anything, far more than what Daniel was afforded. And why? Well, simply because we have already seen part of what Daniel saw fulfilled. We have seen the coronation of the king. His procession carrying the cross through the streets of Jerusalem was his path to glory. The crown of thorns he wore are the crowns of the king of kings. His resurrection from death already show he has defeated sin and death and Satan. And his ascension back to God is him receiving power and glory and majesty. And so what Daniel was looking forward to, we already partially see fulfilled. All that is left to happen is not to work out what these ten horns are, what this little horn is, all that is left to be fulfilled is to see the return of Christ in judgment. And that's why in the book of Acts, when Jesus went up to heaven, the angel said to the disciples, the same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come in the same way that you have seen him going into heaven. Jesus will return. And so there is hope. And perhaps finally... And this may apply to some of you. It is a difficult passage, but there is no point understanding this chapter and seeing and understanding who the Son of Man is and seeing what happens in heaven and seeing that Jesus is indeed the King of kings. No point in knowing all of that if Jesus is not King over your heart. If Jesus is not Lord over your life. No point knowing it if Jesus is not my king. You see, what we want to make sure is that when the thousands upon thousands are gathered around Jesus that last day, will it be an experience where my joy will be complete, where I'll be face to face in the presence of the Ancient of Days, and it'll be a day of joy and glory, or will it be a day where I'll be cast out just like the beast? You see, the the message is clear and simple. Jesus is the Son of Man, the true King. You know that. That is Daniel 7. But the question remains, is he your King, the King of your heart? Well, if he is, praise be to the Lord. But if he's not, let him be your King today. And do join me in this prayer if that is you. Let's pray. O ancient of days, we do see the nations rage, kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall, but you reign over all. There is none above you and none before you, and it is your throne that will be everlasting. It is the Son of Man, the true King. You have entrusted your kingdom. So we pray, let Jesus be not only the King of kings, but the King of my heart as well. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.